out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Cherry Vanilla, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry, all the way from Palm Springs. Singer, songwriter, publicist and actress worked with such people as David Bowie as well as once had two members of The Police in her band, Stuart Copeland, and also Sting and worked for the likes of Van Gellis. Anyway, enough about that because we're going to find out all those details in the interview. So after quite a long chat about this and that, which went on for nearly 30 minutes, we got down to that very exciting subject. That was the early formative years, basically the childhood. So, Cherry, it's over to you. Take it away. My father started out as a garbage man, basically. Um, he had a few jobs because I was born during the, the war, just the end, 1943. And he, he, he had a job uh, for a meat, a meat market delivering meat. So we always had meat, which, you know, people... It was expensive for people in those days. It was a tough time. So I was born into a family of uh, two older sisters and an older brother, all Irish Catholic. I mean, they were all born in America, and my parents were born in America, but all of my ancestors are sort of of a Celtic nature, Um, a Scottish grandfather on my mother's side and everybody else from Ireland, basically. And um, so... My mother worked also um, as a telephone operator at this hotel called the Hotel 14, which just happened to have in the basement of the hotel the famous nightclub, the Copacabana. Mm-hmm. So, and we, I, 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 we grew up in Woodside, Queens, which is just across the bridge from Manhattan. And in those days, once you left Manhattan, it wasn't like it is now where everything's cool in Brooklyn and, you know, even the Bronx is getting cool and Staten Island is getting cool because of then it was like, we called Manhattan the city. And otherwise we didn't even consider that we lived in the city, you know? Mm-hmm. So, cause that's where the rents were cheap and everything. But my mother worked there. It was just, you know, a 20 minute train subway train ride into Manhattan. And, um, my father then got promoted over the years and he, he was a chauffeur driving the um, borough superintendent of Queens. So, and my mother, her shift at the Hotel 14 ended at like 11.30 at night some days of the week. And my father wouldn't let her go on the subway home. He was very protective of her. So he used to drive in to Manhattan and pick her up on those nights. And then if I was a good little girl, we're talking now when I'm like six, seven years old, they would let me stay up and I'd have my pajamas on and everything so I could kind of fall asleep in the car and I'd go into Manhattan with him and then he would take me down to the kitchen looking into the Copacabana and I would see Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Eartha Kitt and all these incredible performers at the Copacabana and I was just this little girl and um, so, so I grew up in this very kind of you know poor in a way I, we thought we were middle. I, I thought we were middle class. I, I never went hungry or anything like that. But we didn't have a lot of money. But I had a, a good childhood. But it was very unsophisticated in some ways. Very Irish Catholic, all of that. But then 
I got to know this other world because of my mother working there of this showbiz life at the Copacabana and these exotic people, performers and musicians and stuff and, um, and gay people, although I had a gay uncle buddy um, and, you know, black people and, you know, um, Hispanic performers, Carmen Miranda, and, you know, Jimmy Durante and all these. So I was exposed to, uh, to like the world I lived in, which was Catholic school, you know, very strict. And then this world of showbiz, which was like the opposite end of the spectrum. And so I guess that's what formed my my world and what I wanted to do and be and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I grew up in. And um, when I got out of high school, I was 17 and my parents only had enough money to send the boy in the family to college. And that's the way it was anyway, because they thought girls would just college was a waste for girls. So I went to work right away at an ad agency at age of 17 in 1961. And um, that started my life in uh, Madison Avenue advertising, and I worked my way up to being a producer of radio and TV commercials and uh, took it quite seriously. Like eight years, I did that full time. But in the last three or four years of that and then beyond, I took on like weekend jobs and like being a DJ at this little club, and I worked in Bloomingdale selling clothes so I could get a discount on my my outfits i spent all my money i made there on clothes but um so i was always a hard worker um and um providing for myself and i loved making tv commercials and radio commercials um but you know i'm somebody who demystifies you know like and once i get to know how to do something and do it pretty well then i get like sort of not not interested to do it much longer. I want to try something else. I'm kind of like a little, you know. Yes, and did the and was because obviously that was kind of you. You were right there during the whole sixties, or well, certainly saw it change quite radically. So, had you become sort of aware of that kind of that kind of I suppose youth culture and sort of the the kind of the rise of the I suppose the kind of culture and the hippies and the and the sort of. And and I suppose obviously looking back, it's a bit different, isn't it? Because we've got hindsight. But you know, the the kind of the West Coast has that image of it you know, peace and love, and then the East Coast has the sort of whole slightly darker side with the Andy Warhol world. Did you, were you sort of feeling that kind of excitement of being at that age where you started thinking, oh, look, the, the, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, oh, look, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, and, and things like that. Was, that. was that coming into your consciousness? Well, I had kind of left full-time advertising and was just doing little freelance jobs to pay the rent, and kind of doing more DJing. So I was more and more into music. And then I got very interested in going to, you know, the live shows, the Fillmore East, all that. And uh, then I wanted to know the musicians and hang out with them and all that. But for me, I think probably I was around 10 or 11 or when Elvis hit. And when Elvis hit, I knew something was up, you know. Elvis was like nothing else I ever dreamed of, you know. Uh, and I, I was just mad for him. And um, once that hit, I, I, I knew, I knew there was a new world coming. And then, of course, yes, Beatles. And then by this time, I'm like, you know, out in the world on my own as a working woman, and I could do what I wanted and go to 
shows that I wanted and buy the records that I wanted and uh, take the LSD that I wanted and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it was a radical change. Um, it was peace and love and flower power and, you know, um, Abby Hoffman and all those, you know, radical um, fighters for liberal thoughts and whatever. And uh, be-ins and, and love-ins and um, demonstrations against the war in Vietnam and seeing how eventually the demonstrations and stuff did get to the government and get get the war changed but and gay rights was just blooming and um women's rights was just blo- so it was it was a fantastic time i mean i i know kids today despite all the coronavirus and the fact that they can't even touch each other I know they're finding romance in it somehow. When you're young, you just find romance and whatever, you know, that maybe they're finding it in the technology now or something. But, you know, to me, how could I ever have anything, any era in my life more romantic than that era, the 60s, 70s, you know, that was, especially for me, the 60s, because that was the years of discovery for me and great psychedelic experimentation which opened my mind like so much because I had, you know, this more sheltered, except for the Copacabana, more sheltered childhood, you know, and now I was just free, free to do what I wanted and have sex with who I wanted. And I was, at first, first in a way, I kind of thought I had a lot of sex because I was shy and it was a way, I don't know, it was easier sometimes than talking. Um, but, but I, I did become addicted to sex. I'm, I must say, I mean, I, I did become kind of addicted to sex and, um, so, but I, you know, I wasn't hurting anybody and, uh, I was free to do that and it was free love time. It was the time to do that kind of experimentation. If you were ever going to do it, it was pre-AIDS and all of that kind of stuff. And it's funny, then when I turned 40, like I gave up sex completely and, um, so I, I've lived a whole opposite life for the second half of my life, where you know, yes. sex doesn't doesn't interest me at all, except in the in the artistic sense or something. And even then, if I come across a a porn channel on my uh, when I'm surfing my TV or something, I don't know. It it reminds me of puppies now. If I see two people having sex, you pump pump <laughs> pump pump pump. pump. I, it, it, like once once sex has a comedic edge to you, it becomes unsexy, you know. So um, yeah, in my older years, I just um, I just lost interest in it. So I felt like okay, well, good, I had it all at once, and I fulfilled all the things I wanted to do, and that was it. I'm done. Move on. Yes. So if I was a young person now, I I don't know. I you know I, I talk to young friends and. And they're out there having sex. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, but when you're a 25-year-old guy or something, you know, I guess they still feel invincible. Like, we probably felt invincible, too, but we were so much more innocent. We didn't know yet what was coming, AIDS and all the infections and 
viruses, you know? Yes. That's, that's what made it kind of romantic and beautiful, too. It was a time of innocence. It really was, you know? And did you, I mean, when you sort of were going through, because I'd, I'd sort of done various interviews with people, two members of the, no, three members of the Coquettes, and then you had oh. that, that kind of the Fayette and, is it Scrumbly and, and Pam? I mean, did you sort of see that kind of world appearing in, on your horizon and um, immediately get drawn to that as well as the kind of Andy Warhol gang as well. Well, the Cockettes and the Angels of Light, that was very West Coast, you know, San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. But they came to New York and did concerts and I attended them. And we hung out maybe once, one night I might have hung out with them at Max's, maybe two in the back room. But that was my the extent of my relationship with those people. And, you know, I enjoyed it, but I was doing, we were doing on the East Coast our own kind of theater of the ridiculous with all the glitter and glam. And to tell you the truth, our shows on the East Coast that were called sort of underground theater or theater of the ridiculous, they were much more together than any shows the Coquettes or the Angels of Light ever did. I mean, on one hand, there was a beauty to the innocence of what the Angels of Light and Coquettes did. You know, they just got really dressed up and glittered and did a lot of improvisation and a few little things. But it wasn't it wasn't a really well thought out, well composed show or anything, you know. It was a bit amateurish, you know. And that was the beauty of it in a certain way too. It was childish. Yes. So at the same time, but I, I but we were involved in our own East Coast um, theater of the ridiculous, which I think had a bit more substance, actually. Yes, so, and then and um, and then you were you were in Pork, the famous production of Pork, which came to London, didn't it? So, and you must have been working with Tony, and in in Gracias, and also um, the other Tony Vedenti. Tony Zanetta? Yes, Tony. that's the one, Tony Zanetta, I should know. Um, yes, so so what was, well, how did you manage to sort of find yourself working in, in that kind of production? Well, Tony and Gracia, the first play I did was written by Jane, well, it was Wayne County then, called World, the Birth of a Nation. And that was the first one of these underground theater things I ever did. And uh, I had like two lines in it or something, but I repeated them all through the show, blah, 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 blah. And Andy Warhol, you know, used to attend Tony and Gracia's plays and all, all the directors, Charles Ludlam, downtown scene, everybody supported each other and went to their productions and, you know, as attend audience and everything. So um, then I did a play with um, Patti Smith called Island. Um, and I think Tony and Gracia wrote that one. And... Um, they did pork in New York at La Mama, and I wasn't in it. I don't know where, where I was, what I was doing. I often went off to live, like, in the Berkshires, in the mountains, for a year or two. Uh, you know, I would often do that, like, cool out, and I might have done that. I don't know. But I, for some reason, I did, wasn't even had a, didn't even have an awareness of pork going on in New York when they did that. So then when... Um, this producer came to bring it to England. You could only bring half of the American cast anyway to get proper uh, actors, 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 equity, work permits, and so forth. And then half the cast had to be from the UK. So they had to eliminate some people from the cast and add uh, English people. And um, 
Andy himself did not like the way the lead actress played uh, the role I played, Pork. Um, Cleve Roller was her name, and she was a very experienced Broadway actress and much more experienced than I was as an actress, God knows. But Andy liked the quality of the non-kind of Broadway actress training. He didn't want that. He wanted a more raw improvisational, a person who was really kind of playing an aspect of themselves, really. So he said he wasn't going to bring Cleve Roller to uh, to England to, to play pork, and asked Tony and Grassi, what about that girl who said, you know, I hear you, grandfather, and stuff in Jane County's play? So Tony and Gracias took me to audition for Andy at the uh, factory, and um, Andy was <laughs> – I had a wonderful talk with him because he was very interested in Madison Avenue advertising and uh, TV commercials. We talked about that. And then he asked me about Catholic school. We talked about that. He was, he was very Catholic himself. And um, – then he asked me if I remembered any hymns from Catholic school, so I sang him Dear Lady of Fatima really badly. I mean, really, uh, a cappella, probably off-key. But anyway, um, he said, oh, that uh, okay, give her the part, Tony. I like her. So that's how I got the part to go to England and play the part of Pork at the Roundhouse. Yes, yeah. and what was your memories of the being at the Roundhouse? Oh, it was a fantastic time. I mean... Except for one big problem, I got pregnant and didn't even realize it through until the sh till the show was almost done. I mean, most of the time I was over there um, from rehearsal through the month that we played, I, I, I was getting sick all the time. I didn't know it was morning sickness. I thought it was the climate and blah blah blah. That was a that was a drag. That was really a, a horror. But. But I didn't know it, and other than that, and throwing up here and there and stuff like that, um, it was fabulous because the Hard Rock Cafe opened just the same week that we hit town to start rehearsals. So right away, there were lines at the Hard Rock, and you know we were just beyond the lines, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we were Warhol stars, you know? And, so, and we had that attitude that you have when you have a group, you know, because it was so fantastic for me to go my first time in London, not just on my own and not as a tourist, but with a group of friends and with a project and with your rent paid in a beautiful apartment and you're getting a salary. It was such a fabulous way to go. And there's strength in numbers. And because we were all there together, we felt, you know, much more important than we probably were. I mean, people <laughs> didn't know who we were individually, but they knew that we were Andy Warhol people, so that gave us a kind of cachet, you know. So anyway, um, it was one of the most wonderful, wonderful times of my life, really. And, you know, it was the other difficult thing was we didn't do it with mics at all. And, you know, the roundhouse, very difficult to project your voice into that shape building and everything with no microphones. So I was always losing my voice. I mean, that was that was the hard part. But other than that, I mean, Tony and Gracia really pushed pushed us in rehearsals and everything. And I was on stage almost the whole time, on, on almost every scene. So I had to really learn like tons of tons of crazy dialogue. And 
it, it, it was not easy, but it was so much fun. And then, you know, there were afternoons where I'd go study my lines sitting on a lawn in Hyde Park or walking through the Rose Garden there or going out in a little boat in the Serpentine, Serpentine, whatever you call it. And, um, you know, we took we went on a trip on that, you know, they had that car, that old railroad car, LaBelle or something, um, that took you down to... Um, What's that seashore town? Uh, Was it um, they had, not Brighton or... Yeah, Brighton. They had this old antique train, like an Art Deco train. It was beautiful, and they had, like, revived it and had Sunday trips. Oh, God, we love that, with silver tea service on the train and everything, down to Brighton. So, you know, we, we had a lot of fun, and we did a lot of things, and we met a lot of people. And, of course, we met David Bowie, you know, and uh, so... It was, you know, it was the time of a lifetime. It was fabulous, yeah. Yes. And then, I mean, how did you then get involved with the main man, you know, limited and productions and, and sort of... Because obviously in the 60s you'd already had that experience of PR, so this must have been another step. But main man sounds like quite a different setup and another gang going from the, the Warhol gang to another sort of scene. Well... I had experience with advertising, but it was paid advertising. I never really had PR experience. So when it came to doing that, my my mission was to make Bowie famous. And, you know, at first I started just answering the phones at Main Man because I was out of work at the time. And um, then I, I was the only one that had all this kind of corporate office experience so I set up the whole office and the office machines and I knew how to type and I knew how to work all the machines and uh, all that kind of stuff so um, but it was my mission from the time I met him in London when they came to see the play and we started hanging out with him it was my mission to you know make him a major star help make him I mean it wasn't just me it took a whole village (laughs) but um, but um, I really believed in him from the first moment I saw him perform. I really believed in him. And um, so when Tony DeFries decided to bring him to America, he hired Tony Zanetta to be like the road manager and stuff. And Tony hired me to like set up an office in New York and answer phones and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when the press didn't even know who he was yet, so Tony was very like clever. Tony DeFries, the manager, in that you know he got him bodyguards dressed in in karate uniforms and stuff. He set it up like you know you can't touch this guy, you, you know, because he and and it it created an illusion that Bowie was much more famous and much more bigger than he really was. He was nobody in America yet, you know. So um, when when people started getting interested, I was the one that they'd get on the phone. So there wasn't time, and we didn't have the Internet. To, I, I knew very little about Bowie's background, actually. I mean, we were going so fast into the future. We didn't have too much time to go back and listen to all his albums and read all the articles that had happened in England. and so so. But Tony wouldn't wouldn't let anybody talk to him that added to his importance so when the press did start calling or we started contacting them they got to talk to me and I sort of had a natural affinity for it plus 
then that's when I started learning what, you know, PR was. It was because like, oh, my God, you know, you spend so much money on a full page ad in a newspaper or a TV commercial. You can get five pages in a magazine by just talking to people. That's PR. It's free. You know? <laughs> yes. But so, it's, um, well, what's it's quite interesting, I was going to say, what's, huh? quite inter what's quite interesting with that is that, hello? you know, oh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was just going to say, what was quite interesting was that, you know, the work that David did in the 60s was quite folksy and he had, you know, the long hair and he didn't, he wasn't really on any cultural zeitgeist, was he? So I just kind of wondered how you managed you, Tony, Angie, kind of managed to sort of create the person that he became, which was quite a, it's quite a transformation, isn't it? Because he would have got very, he would have just kind of got lost, wouldn't he, really? Well, I'll tell you. The first time I went to see him perform was at the Country Club, just on the outskirts of London there. And he had Mick Ronson on electric guitar. David himself was on acoustic guitar. And he had Rick Wakeman on the piano. And that was it. It was just the three of them. And so he was still doing songs from Hunky Dory, which were kind of folksy and whatever. But he had started recording Ziggy Stardust. And Mick Ronson was a rocker. And you knew that from the beginning, you know, Mick Ronson was David's Keith, you know, Keith Richards. He, and, and so I knew that more rock was coming in and, and I knew that him meeting us, we were in, you know, he's, he, well, like most artists, they're magpies and they take a little bit from everybody. And we knew he was taking stuff from us, our New Yorkese, you know, and, uh, and looking at that and examining that, like for harder rock, and I knew he was going going to go harder rock, especially once he got to New York, because he adored Lou Reed and all of that, and and even like even like Elvis, you know, he adored pure pop rock like that. So I could see that coming, and it's, it was Mick that made me see that coming. As long as he was to stick with Mick, I thought he'd get more, you know, and, and that's. That's what I hoped for, that he would stick with Mick. Now, creating an image, I didn't, like, Angie did more of that kind of stuff where she'd shop for him and find those Kansai outfits, and she got Susie Fusi to cut his hair and dye it and all. I didn't do any of that. That was all they're doing and his ideas and everything. I didn't, I didn't, like, create him or anything like that. He created himself, but he took from help from, he was very smart to take things from people who, you know, he trusted people, trusted people with the look and the style. And what what when he did start talking to the press, he trusted me, which ones to pick that he should or shouldn't talk to and which radio shows, which DJs would play his re records and who wouldn't and which ones were homophobic and which ones weren't. And, and you know, I it was a time of this sexual thing, especially in America and New York, and I, I, one of my PR things, which I kind of knew what I was doing, but I didn't really know, but is that, you know, what, he gave the impression to be, you know, bisexual, and I gave people the impression that he was a really hot fuck, you know, so you, you had this kind of, you know, dichotomy of what the fuck is this guy? I mean, is he straight? Is he gay? Here's women saying he's really hot sex and then he looks so floozy like and, you know, so, but that creating that little thing created buzz, you know, which 
like I say, I, I'm not sure I even knew I was creating buzz, but I was just doing what came naturally, how, how to help make him famous. And uh, so. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then, you know, with that kind of scene, which was quite amazing, you then step out from that to being, you know, into a band. So obviously, because let's face it, most people have about five years where they are on a scene and then they just kind of, they can't cope and they just step off. There's a few people who aren't, but then you you step on, you know, behind the mic at this stage. So what was the, did you just feel kind of like when you were working with uh, Main Man and Tony DeFries and David and Mick, did you just always feel kind of like, God, I really wished I was on, on the stage myself? In a way, in a way, yeah, but I was on the stage. I had done, you know, all those plays and, I still would do some little occasional things here in the acting world or whatever. So I, I was on the stage, but I didn't think, I I didn't know where I was going to tell you the truth. When, when Tony closed my little production company that I had at Main Man, decided to close down all the filming, I had to figure out what to do next to pay the rent. And so the next thing I did was, made a book called Pop-Tart Compositions, a little book of poetry and drawings. And I sold like, I forgot how many we printed, like a hundred books and I sold them for $25 each. And that's how I made the money for the, you know, it was just, just kind of coping. And, and, and so then I needed more money after that to pay the next month's rent and the next month's rent. So, um, and we tried making uh, videos, but you know, we didn't have MTV yet. And in, in England, you had music videos on TV, but we didn't really have them in America yet. And Max, my partner, who I had hired at Main Man, who was from Advertising Days, I helped hired him to help me write, and he directed the, the uh, commercials we did and stuff. And um, so he and I, we tried to, to, to do that, but we were like a little ahead of our time to do videos like that. We did a, a Mick Ronson video, The Slaughter on 10th Avenue, and that was like the, probably, the, no, that wasn't the last thing we did, but anyway, I'm getting off track here. But anyway, um, so, um, what did you ask me? <laughs> <laughs> step in, step in, well, you know, obviously you were on the stage in, in the theatre, oh, yeah, but yeah, then, yeah, then yeah. Be, so, be, being part so, of a band, but you know, this, this kind of also was quite a, um, quite a launch, wasn't it? Like a rocket, you're, you're sort of you know, the people you met um, quite quickly were quite stunning, you know, like a stunning team of people. Well, my whole life, in the, yeah, it was like a, a rocket from the 60s, you know, 60s, 70s, yeah. Um, but what happened was, okay, so I had put out that book of poetry and I made a little money that way. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I was always where to get the next month's rent was always my primary concern, not being a star or something, you know what I mean? So then um, I decided another way to um, make money was to perform those poems, to read them aloud. And that's what I started doing a little um, kind of nightclub act um, of reading, it was kind of bawdy. I guess it was a comedy act in a way, but my poems were mostly comedic. And um, so I started doing that kind of thing, a little cabaret act. And again, I didn't know I was going further than that. I never knew where I was going next, you know, what was going to happen, well, who, who was going to come into my life. But yes, you're right. People did come into my life. And the, 
some musicians came and said, well, you know, I'll play bongos behind you while you do your poetry. Okay. And then another one said, well, I'll play guitar. Okay. Before I knew it, I had lots of musicians kind of hanging around playing with me doing sort of poetry and, and telling stories with like a musical background. And then I needed to have songs for to play Lewis Friedman's uh, club, Reno Sweeney's. So I got a, a young guy to write me three songs and they were like comedic songs. There were songs about people who can't sing and, you know, uh, so they were novelty songs. So you could see how it was, you know, getting there that like, okay, well now you got musicians, now you're doing songs for people to laugh at. Why not do some rock and roll songs? That's what you love to <laughs> do it. So it was kind of evolutionary. It wasn't like a big overall plan that I, you know, could see where it was going. It just kind of went where it went and I let it happen. And, um, so, you know, then I started writing rock and roll songs. Um, yes. And, uh, and then I, the band and then, you know, the idea was to get a record contract and I went to England to get a record contract and, you know, um, it, it, there was a lot, I could tell the typical cliche stories about record companies and stuff, but I won't. But, you know, my first album was a bunch of songs that I, I used to have to pull it out of out of my musicians to write the music for me because I really could only write the lyrics and oh god musicians anyway uh it was it was a it was a slug to try to get them to move like singing back up I would say would you please sing the back up on the chorus I, I and then they'd get on stage and they wouldn't sing the backups I'm like oh anyway so um but I was having trouble with RCA. The first album was good. It was good raw rock and roll, and it was a, it was a culmination of having played with musicians now for about a year in America. But then they wanted RCA wanted us, you know, they insisted they had the right to a second album, and I tried to get off the label because I could have gone to another label then, and I knew RCA I wasn't going to have a good relationship with. It was deteriorating, and but they insisted I give them a second album. And Louis and I were just living on our own, and Louis, my guitar player boyfriend, in London. And so we did things like a hymn and a disco song and a love song. We were just like, okay, fuck it. You know, they're not going to promote this album. And we're not going to bring a band over here. And it's just you and me, babe. We'll write these songs. We'll get... So I like some of the songs on the second album a lot, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in the line that was going to sell. They wanted me to follow a more punk rock route and stuff. And I don't know, it, it fell apart, but for many reasons and my romance with Louis, uh, you know, again, I got pregnant. I don't know what this body, you know, uh, 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 and so there were complications and my romance with Louis fell apart. So at that point, I decided just let it go, let it go. I had my fun. I had my experience. I know yes. what it feels like. I demystified. Now let me just be kind of a writer for the rest of my life because I can do that and grow fat and old and ugly <laughs> and you know. But <laughs> but then, but you you know you I mean but I say but but there is an amazing. I mean you you know you you sort of. You work with Miles Copeland, you know, you have two members of the, what become the police, you know, one of the biggest bands during the 80s and 90s who sell billions. And, you know, you've got musicians like, is it Zeka Escabel, who's on 
you know, keyboards and you know, piano. I mean, quite an amazing band. And you're there right at the beginning of punk. You know, you, you know, so your timing is quite extraordinary. And you're in London as well. So, and and you sort of, yeah. I mean, that that is quite. But I was never really punk, David. I was really pop. You know, I had a song called "The Punk," which was about pretty much more about the Ramones of anything. But but I was kind of pop, and I was also like glitter had just kind of developed into punk and I was already kind of doing retro glitter in a way, you know what I mean? I was a little, a little out of tune, a little off key from what was going on. Cause I thought that was more interesting than to just be like the stranglers or this or the uh, Lydia lunch. I, I, so I was always a little off, off the, the, the mark in a way. And, and maybe in a way purposely, I must say, cause you know, when everybody was looking like a punk, I wanted to wear gold sequins, you know what I mean? Yes. And, and they criticized me, the, the music press criticized me for having, you know, perfect manicures or, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, a, a Vegas makeup, they would call it and stuff. And, and, and because and sex in England in those days, for me, you know, you weren't supposed to be about sex because they they took themselves more seriously about being, you know, uh, 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 about the government and um, the working class man and the, str- the, the struggles in that way. They were all just as sexy and having as much sex as I was, but they to flaunt that, that wasn't the style to do right then. You know what I mean? So in a way, I was like flaunting something in their faces that... And it's funny because in America, I had a kind of very gay audience. And um, when I went to England, it wasn't a gay audience at all. So I was used to a whole... And also in America, I smoked a lot of pot and took a lot of LSD and stuff. And I was always stoned out of my mind when I was performing. And when I went to England, even to record stuff, I I never smoked cigarettes. And the only way you could get me high was to have those stupid joints they made with all the tobacco in them. I was always getting sick on the tobacco and not really high. Like, so it was a whole new ball game when I went to England. And then, yes, I gave Stuart and Sting, I gave them their, um, you know, their first gig. They were my opening act and my rhythm section. And that was the first time they ever got a gig as the police, you know? Yes, I know. That's, that's one hell of a moment, isn't it? And um, yes. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. But what I've also then slightly moved into as we go into different periods, I mean, a lot of people who, I mean, because I did an interview, funny enough, with Tony Zanetta. I mean, he, you know, suddenly, you know, he was with David doing fantastic stuff and then gets dropped and then has to kind of pick himself up. And I can't remember what he did, actually, after that. It was a long time ago I did the interview. Oh, well... You know, we're we're resourceful people. He did coding. That was the era where coding was a good part time job. He did uh, decor. He did. He took, and then he got a job with um, a long time job. I think he worked for like thirty years or something for this a sheet and towel company, West Point Stevens, big fabric conglomerate, where he d- he did their showrooms twice a year, which was like doing stage setting, and you know, he, yeah. He, set up fake bedrooms all complete with all the furniture and flowers and everything, you know. And then he also did tableau shows, um, like the discotheques were having like little five-minute tableau shows, and he would direct those. And uh, 
so he 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 survived, you know. But, yes. Uh, he's, he's great. He's still my best friend in the well, world. Well, I have to say, he still looks fantastically well. I mean, did you, I mean, in the, in the 80s, you have another transformation. This is where you meet people like Van Gelis and also Roger Walters. So were you back in America at this stage? Which stage, 80s? The 80s, the, the interest in the 80s. Okay, I actually met Van Gelis at the RCA offices in 1977. He and, he and I were on the same label with the same A&R man. So, uh, it, but yes, our friendship then started into the thing. And Roger Waters, of course, I had always, oh God, I don't know, as, as blatantly sexual as I could be and just come on to these musicians and, you know, for sex... I, I loved Roger Waters so much from a distance that when I finally was close to him, I was frozen. I couldn't even, I couldn't even approach him. <laughs> I was just frozen. So then, in the '80s, Michael Kamen was uh, producing an album for Roger, pros and cons of hitchhiking, and they needed somebody to do a couple of little sound effects and voices. And uh, so Michael told Roger about me and they were doing it in his home studio they made that album uh, out near between London and the airport somewhere you know one of those crazy little houses you'd never know was Roger Waters living there and in the basement was this recording studio and um, so that was my thrill because then I got to meet Roger and do these little things for him on the album and it's funny every once in a while I'll get like a um, I mean every once in a while like every 10 years I'll get an email from Roger. Um, it's, I got one from him when I was in the Berkshires in the summer. It was like a day late. He was going to play some town right near the Berkshires and uh, invite me to the show. And uh, but I, you know, so I've stayed in touch with him in a very distant way uh, over the years. Yes, absolutely. And I was going to say, I mean, did you then? Was it then? You became sort of much more sort of focused on the PR and the, the you know publishing um publicity for for different artists well um what happened after david i started performing my poetry and then it led to having a band i never really you know, and then and then i guess vangelis came after that and with vangelis the pr was i mean i did i did a lot of little things for vangelis um you know he he was signing with Sony uh, Classical in America, so he needed an office in America. So, because his main lawyer who took care of the contracts and the money was in Athens, and so I worked mostly with that man, uh, also named Vangelis, but Vangelis Kalafatis. And um, so I was like a satellite office, but he, at the beginning, when I first started working for him, 1997, now we were already friends, don't forget, he would fly me over to Athens like mm, four times a year, first class all the way, very classy man, very classy man. So, you know, best hotel suites, first class air travel, anything I wanted. And that was the way I got to know Greece, which was just a blessing because, you know, he was really one of the most famous people in this country and most respected. So anywhere I went with him or that it was known that I worked for him, I was treated like, oh my God, royalty, you know. So a wonderful way to get to know Greece. But then over the years, because he used to have me like, if if he wanted, if 
if he wanted to and accept award, they were giving him awards on TV shows, and he didn't want to go on the TV show. He'd hire me to go do the acceptance speech for him. Lots of crazy stuff. Lots of writing. I wrote and rewrote his bios and helped him with um, liner notes. And um, we did, eventually, he wouldn't do any interviews live at all. It was all by question and answer, so I could you know, help them with the answers and we could edit ourselves and everything. So that was kind of fabulous. But um but with Vangelis the kind of PR was mostly was mostly saying no because uh, at that stage in his life, I mean he he didn't really want to do publicity at all. So uh, more than anything, when people would um request interviews and stuff, I'd have to you know, get the information and sometimes see what they wanted to talk about. But mostly it was saying no. So, and like with movies, he was offered a lot of movies while I worked for him. But his answer to them would always be, uh, I won't say yes until I see a rough cut. And they wanted him to sign up on the script level so they could use his name at being connected with the film, you know, to get funding and everything. So, um, and he, doing film scores wasn't Van Gallis' first love. He liked doing albums, you know, but um, people know him more from the film scores, I think. Yes. Well, God, though, interestingly enough, my brother, who's seven years older than me, he was very into prog rock, so he was into Van Gallis, but I just remember him for his, um, yeah, for his soundtracks and his epic kind of emotive, sonic, you know, soundscapes. I mean, he's a, he's a genius. He He really is. And he's a gentleman. He's a really like a throwback to great classical artists. He lives like he is, you know, with always perfumed and velvet jacket at home. And, you know, he lives like in another century, you know, but um, but beautifully so. He's a good man. He's good. I have nothing but good to say about him. Nothing. But and, and, and obviously that that was kind of was it a 20 year kind of. Con- not contract, but, you know, kind of relationship in that kind of business world with, with someone like that must have been. Yeah, it was 20 years, and, and I had been his friend for, I don't know, 10, 20 years before that or whatever. Um, so from 1977, I was his friend. Yeah. 1997, I started officially working for him. Yes. And did you... I mean, it was wonderful because I, I could play the executive, you know, because... I uh, I mean, it was, I was a one-person office. I would often hire somebody freelance if I needed help with something. Um, but um, And I did all kinds of... I did research for him, and I did shopping for him, and little things like that, whatever he wanted, you know. And um, But he gave me plenty of time to do my own thing. I asked him when they asked me to write the book, like, you know, it's going to take a lot of time. Is it okay with you? He goes, yeah, for sure. Okay, as long as I come first. I said, okay, you'll always come first. But he he wasn't very demanding of me. And over the years, he needed me less and less. See, when I first started working with that uh, Greek lawyer, who I, a man I oh totally adore, his English wasn't the best. And so he he needed me more for letters and for contracts to read and interpret what people were trying to say and to help him with what he was trying to say. But but then in his office in Athens, he started hiring people who were college-educated in America. So some of them had a better command of English than I did, you know. So he didn't even that lawyer didn't need me so much after a while. And I was recognizing that. That's why I had time to write the book. So... Um, 
when it came, it did come as a bit of a surprise and a shock when he said, I have no more money to pay you. (laughs) (laughs) But but, uh, I kind of expected it. And the lawyer had hinted that, you know, funds were getting low, but whatever. But he's okay. I think they did another deal on this publishing and he makes a few million every time they do that. So yes, yeah, well, that's he's got, quite... an, he's got an amazing catalog, you know. Well, phenomenal. I mean, when you when you had the idea for the book, did it was it because sometimes you know we have these kind of thoughts and late at night you think I must do that and you tell a few friends and then you wake up the next morning and think I hope um, I hope no one remembers that. <laughs> did you? That's I mean, so true. <laughs> that's so true. I'll tell you what happened. Pamela DeBars, who wrote on with the band. She was writing a book called Let's Spend the Night Together, in which each chapter was a different groupie. And she interviewed and, and put a picture, and it was a book on a whole bunch of women like me who had been groupies in their lives. And so one day I got a call from her agent, and her, her literary agent, and he said, you know, your chapter in the book is my favorite, and I think you have a, a whole book in you. So um, why don't you uh, make a presentation to us, and I'll shop it around. So when he first pre- presented me with the form of all the stuff you had to do to make a presentation, I was like, oh, my God, I'll never do this. You know, because you had to write a one-page synopsis, a three-page synopsis, a marketing, why this book, to what age bracket. You know, it was a whole, it was all business. It was a business. You had to do this thing, or they, and you had three sample chapters. You know. Anyway, I did most of it, and I wrote one chapter, and I said, you know what, I'm submitting this, because if they don't like one chapter, they're not going to like three, you know? So um, he said, okay, well, you didn't complete this, but I... I, I like it, and uh, I have a, a a publisher, the same one who published um, uh, uh, Pamela DeBar's book, and I think he'll like it. So he presented it to him, and they gave me a book deal. And uh, I just, it wasn't a lot of money or anything like that, but I just went, yeah, okay, let's do it with them. Sure. Yes. So. And, um, and how long did know. that? How long did that take? I mean, from that sort of. I promised them a year, but it took me two. Yes. I mean, did and and I guess there was a lot. Was there much rewriting and rewriting and kind of digging? Oh my God, I'm an endless rewriter. Endless. You you have to take it away from me at some point, or I just keep on <laughs> editing. You know, but um, but um, it wasn't the writing so much that took time. It was research, because I kept diaries at some periods. I, I always have a diary. But sometimes I'll write in it three times a day, every day for two years. And then sometimes a half a year will pass and I haven't written in my diary. You know, so they were spotty. But there were some periods where they were good. And without them, I couldn't have, uh, my memory. I could. And then there was Tony Zanetta who lived through almost the, all these experiences with me. So he was very helpful because he didn't take as many drugs as I did back then. And he had a better, he still has a better memory. So I had Tony's help, and when I had a question, I had to do a lot of research about where I was at certain times and what, you know, what was like, what was that event I was in. The research took more than the writing, I think, you know. Yes, but, absolutely. Uh, but, but then the writing, um, 
that took time too because just you're trying to get as close to the truth of the moment as you can, you know, without getting all flowery and whatever, but trying to get to the essence. You know, you're a writer yourself. And uh, by the way, you're not the same one who does the wildlife stuff, right? No, 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 not, not oh, that Isn't one. that wild? Okay. Yeah. Anyway, you know that um, you're always trying to get to make the moment feel feel real again. And um, so that's the challenge, you know, of a writer. Yes. And, and I mean, and obviously having to sort of, yes, go back to stuff. Did that all feel, you know, when you were processing through it, did that sort of feel okay? I mean, because some people, it's quite an emotional thing. Sometimes it's kind of, they have to sort of dig through it. And sometimes it's quite a release. So after they've written it and they've processed it, they feel a lot better for it. Did you go through any of those kind of stages? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, especially things that really hurt, like have to, having to have an, I mean, I, the state of life I was in and the drug addict that I was and everything, I had to have abortions when I got pregnant. And there's a story in the book later on, I found out I never could have had the children to term because I had a split uterus and all. But anyway, that for a woman to have an abortion, I, I would always fight for a woman's rights to have it, always, always, always. And those people who think that it's an easy decision or that it's the hardest thing a woman can ever do. It's the hardest thing. I mean, I can't kill a cockroach. And then, you know, you think you're going to, you know, kill this life starting within you or whatever. I chose to believe the soul comes into it later. That helps relieve my guilt, I guess. But um, that's very difficult. And I had a a childhood experience of my father with a dog. You'll read about it when you get the book. It was kind of cathartic writing through that stuff, you know, and uh, and realizing, okay, you did it, you lived it, you made that choice then, and, uh, you know, it's a choice you made, and you, that's it, you know. Now you move on. So whatever pain you you suffer for it, you suffer for it, That you know, so... Um, so yeah, I would say so. And of course, on the on the fun side, it brought back so much. I mean, you know, for for a person like me who my whole goal was to make David Bowie into this idol, the night I first had sex with him, I mean, to relive that, go through that and go back to the memory of it and just remembering the lighting, the room and the um the feeling and the temperature and the human touch. I mean, that was, it was fun to go back and remember that. again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I had both. Yeah. I had both kind of experience from it. It was a good exercise. And then, uh, you know, originally I was supposed to take it up to the, like 2010, but, um, when I got to, um, when I got to the contract, I decided and and plus, later in life, I didn't keep the diaries as well as I... I'm keeping them now, lately, very good with dates and places, but there was whole periods that I, I couldn't remember what I was doing, where I was, and Tony Zanetta wasn't there with me, and I was like, I'm not... You know, this is enough for now, maybe one day I'll... I don't know if I'll ever write the second half of the book, but, you know, in the second half of my life, I worked with Tim Burton and Vangelis and... 
you know, I, I've had some incredible experiences with stars that are, you know, who are just as big as the ones that came before and stuff. So I don't know. I, you know, I feel so blessed, David. I I feel so blessed that I didn't really engineer and make a big roadmap for my life. I kind of, you know, took it like just as it came, you know, uh, and tried to trust my instincts. And, you know, a lot of people would say that's not the way to live your life. It's, you know, not very smart. But thank God, so far I've survived. I've had my hard times, but uh, I'm here. I'm, I'm alive. I'm healthy. I'm comfortable. And um, I'm creative. I wrote a play. Just before COVID hit, I finished the play. And I don't know if we'll ever stage it or even have the first reading, but I did that uh, uh, with the help of uh, Scott Whitman, who, you know, has, he and Mark Shaman have done the music for, you know, uh, Hairspray and Mary Poppins and um, so many things. Um, he, he was supposed to direct a, 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 state, a reading, and then COVID hit, and uh, so I don't know. And he, he's, uh, he and Mark are doing... Um, some like it hot on Broadway, hopefully in the fall of 2021, but they don't know where that all stands yet. God, no, this is true. This is tricky. I mean, yeah, because it's because it was kind of, I mean, slightly, it's quite, there's so many little things, isn't there? But, you know, because a few years ago, I remember seeing that exhibition David Bowie is and, you know, they looked right. at his life, which was quite amazing. And, you, you know, like, a, you know, I mean, luckily, Bowie was my first love, my first single, my first album. So, you know, I've always uh, had that thing with David. And, when you were how old? Um, Ten. So that was kind of seeing oh, him on wow. top of the pops. So that was quite he, lucky. He was, he was like like Elvis Presley was for me. Yes, because it could have been, you, it, I mean, it, it could have been anybody else. And there were some terrible <laughs> artists at that time. But luckily, Bowie was good. But I've always been interested in the fact that, you know, that, that period where I wouldn't say, you know, he obviously was very good, but... You know, people like you, Tony DeFries, Angie, and, and obviously Mick Ronson, you know, if it wasn't for that group of people, he wouldn't have been the artist, let's face it. He wasn't he wasn't going to quite crack it. You know, you can listen to the first album, Space Oddity, and it's it's not going to it's not gonna blow your socks off, is it? And the work before that was even less. So you must feel, you know, with those little moments that you kind of did shape kind of modern modern culture really. I feel, you know, we all played a part, but to tell you the truth, the talent was always there. David was, see, like now, you make your first single a hit or not. If you don't make it a hit, you're out. In those days, you could do three, four, or five albums before you really developed your style and everything. You know what I mean? The record companies gave you that. They groomed you. They, they you know... The record companies help. It's like the old studio system in Hollywood. They they helped groom you along to advance, and they gave you a chance. But you know, Bowie was just on the edge of that cusp where it was starting to be. If you don't make it in your first album, second album, you're done. You can't get a record deal. You know what I'm saying? So um, he he hadn't developed his ultimate style yet. But the talent was there. The talent, the talent to know more than anything. The talent to know what to imitate, what to pick up on, what to use from other people, where to learn, you know, who to trust. He had a talent for all of that. 
So, you know, that's what I saw when I saw him. He wasn't the perfect rock star yet, but it was there in him. And, um, and you know, he worked so hard. I mean, he didn't, he didn't make it seem like work, but David was always working when you were with him. He was always writing, drawing, finding out, asking questions about things, art and history and looking at pictures. He, you know, he 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 was always creating. You know, he worked very hard. Very yes, hard. absolutely. And you must be chuffed. I mean, funny enough, I did an interview with Hunt Hunt Sells, the, the brother of Tony. Oh wow! Who was yeah. who's still kind of rocking? And obviously, Tony. I think he was with Pamela for a while, wasn't he? As well, in his kind of younger days. And it's 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 amazing how many people are still with us and and rocking i know we're Thank both God, yes. i know so do you feel that you know because a lot of people have, have um, noticed have been bringing out their books and their memoirs and kind of process and stuff does it feel like enjoyable that you know that all these characters are still around that you can occasionally like tony and people oh, like that totally totally i keep telling tony's and don't die don't die on me. don't <laughs> die i need you you live through all these experiences with me i have one other friend milt schiffman a guy in um lives in new jersey who became a big success in advertising and he knows me a little longer than tony zanetta because advertising days but he didn't go through all those other stages with me but yeah um but you know at the same time we're dropping like flies and uh, it's you know it it panged to my heart. I, I mean David's death. For some reason, I never visioned myself on this planet with him not in it. I thought I would die before him. I don't know why, but I just did. I never envisioned this planet without David on it, even though I hadn't seen him in years and had contact with him in years and in his later life or anything, but. And when he died, it's funny, I didn't really cry right away. Um, I, I I just felt this incredible emptiness entering my psyche. I don't know. But I didn't really cry. Then I saw that video that he did, and then I cried. Oh, my God. And then um, my friend was doing, like, a tribute show out here, and it was only about three weeks after David died. And okay, I was going to sing Heroes, which I had sung before in other shows. And, and we had a, a one run through, that's all you got, because it was just like each person just sang one song. And I, it was fine in the run through, I was fine in the rehearsal. And I got on stage to do that song, and I broke down crying. I got overwhelmed by this emotion that I had, it was like stronger than I felt three weeks before when I first heard him you know, that he was dead. So it kind of came in stages. I mean, that video, I cannot watch that video. I mean, maybe one day I can again, but it is just, you know, I'm in heaven, he's mm. saying in the video. I mean, but the respect that I have for him, that he lived his life creating right till the end when he knew he was dying. He made his death into art and his illness into art. I, It's just amazing. I mean, I, I'm... I'm so proud that I had anything to do with helping him. Yes, and 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 the amazing thing is, dear old Tony DeFries has just sort of appeared, hasn't he? Sort of doing some little bit of a podcast. So that's been quite interesting hearing 
him talking about his story because he's been one of those artists that we haven't sort of heard or seen or not sort of seen. Right. But but yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting that you think, oh, I didn't even know he was still alive. So um, yes, it's a fascinating world. Well, it was a phenomenon. I mean, I don't know of any other music management company that was ever like a story like Main Man. It was a phenomenon. And um, I keep telling people that, you know, people say, oh, I want to write a book. I said, why don't you write the main man story, you know? Uh, I can't write it. I'm not objective enough. Somebody from the outside should interview the people who are left and write the main man story because it's the most... What, I mean, what other management company did the people who did the jobs in the office get a little bit of famous, you know, like <laughs> me and Tony and everything? You know what I mean? People know I have fans, you know, I'm on Wikipedia, you know, and I was just in the office, you know, that's all because of Bowie. Okay, we had the Warhol connection and other things too, but it's really because of Bowie, you know? Yeah. So, um, stunning. You no, know, uh, uh, but I. Uh, uh, I'm very sad that he's not in the world anymore. I'm very sad about that, you know. And each one who drops and dies, Prince and, oh, God, Freddie Mercury and just all dying, you know. And you'd be like, well, we're at that age now. It's happening. Yes, you know? I know. My, my parents who are in their 80s have that kind of, well, had most of it, but they're still, you know going through the last bits, which is a very humbling. But look, if you were, okay, just one of those questions is a bit corny, but if you were able to, t uh, you know, tell your, if you could have said something to you, an 18-year-old self starting out through all this kind of, the, the, the years, the wisdom and all the, the learning that you've had, I just wondered if there was anything that you thought, God, yeah, there was one thing or there was two things. I would have just said, look, kid, I'll just tell you something. You might want to want to ignore it, but you might not. But I just wondered if there was something that you you would think, yeah, that would have been good. Well, there's just one thing. First of all, uh, I would have said, make sure you have sex with Jimi Hendrix, because, boy, I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> but um, because I adore Jimi Hendrix, but um, but I never did. I, I, I hardly ever even knew him. So, But really, the one thing, I guess it would be... People people always said, do you have any like regrets? So it's the same thing as what would you tell your 18-year-old self in a way? Buy a little house or a little apartment or something of your own. No matter how humble, no matter how small, get a little dwelling that you can call home because I was homeless for luckily a very short time. But the worst thing in the world for me is your... Oh, especially at me, I was already of a kind of advanced age when it happened. You're of a certain age and you don't know where you're going to sleep that night and you don't have money for a hotel. That is so frightening. That, And there are people who do that every day, these poor people, homeless people. And so the one thing, because I've always been a renter, and so you have to have that rent every month, you know, and maybe that motivated me to, to work to make sure I paid. But I wish that I had, um, you know, bought, because I could have, I could have when I was in advertising and stuff, but I was too uh, temporary, you know, who needs to buy anything? I just rent another place, you know, rent next year, move there, move to that country, you know, whatever. Yes. So I, I don't regret that, but I wish I had bought a little place that I could have always somehow kept, you know, through my wanderings that 
I could never be homeless because, like I say, that is the worst feeling in the world. I mean, I I wanted to really end my life the one night when I it was getting dark and I didn't know where I was going to sleep that night, where I was going to go, you know. And you're too proud to beg, you know. You're too proud to call somebody and beg. And then it's what for one night on the sofa uh, anyway, and then what? You got to do it all over. So, but I had some miracles happen, and because I believe in them, and I got through it. So, luckily, I'll get through to the end. Yes, <laughs> God, that sounds really, I was like, oh, blimey. Yes, I know. Well, there was, yes, that, that's kind of an interesting one because I did talk, do an interview with a guy. He did a book on the Mud Club, Richard, is it Bock? Who, um, yes, he said that he, he managed to sort of either buy or rent a Well, he bought a place, I think, which was really cheap in New York. And then it was like, thank God I did that. You know, that was, like yeah. you said, it was just like that was your home and, and you know, whatever happens. And obviously it's going to be up and down. It's, it's like at least you've got that. Exactly. You've got the key. <laughs> It's like I have a, a girlfriend and she has a house in the Hamptons, you know, and it's very high rent out there and high, high, uh, the, the houses are all in the millions, you know, and she has this house that's kind of fallen down, but it's on a magical piece of property. Oh my God, with a little inlet with water with egrets standing and oh, it's just lovely, but the house is falling down and she doesn't have the money to fix it. And so, um, you know, she was renting it out because she could get a lot of rent just renting for a week or something, you know, like a lot of rent in the summertime, especially. Um, and but then every time she'd come home, you know, something was missing, something was broken. She didn't like the way the house was. She, she was angry. She, I said, May, because she was thinking about selling it because she needs the money. She just sell it. She's not as practical as I am, and I don't blame her for not wanting to leave this magical spot it is a magical spot but i said may your home you have to live in a home that you don't have to get out of to let other people live in so you can live there be it a one-room studio it's all yours and you don't have to get out of it for anybody that's you know that's more important at this stage of our lives than you know having the bigger house on the pretty land and so I, that's the way i feel you know um I'm. I I've never been like that indulgent in um in I, I never you know this whole period with rappers with their diamonds and gold I always felt it was so horrible, and um, it's just so materialistic. Well, Madonna said it, didn't she? She's a material. Girl. Yes, that's right. I never felt that kind of thing. You know, like I say, the only material thing I ever really regretted not buying was a house you know yes a, bit, so, um, a home a home yes, this is true but look look you've got you've got an after, you've still got the afternoon in palm springs i've got i've got a um i know at two o'clock i have to call somebody let's see what time is it oh perfect <laughs> I, my, my friend i sold my car a year ago or so because i didn't really need it out here and um I didn't like driving so much anymore. So I have a friend. He drives me everywhere. He's also named David. I have so many. I married a David. I have a David best friend. I had two other David best friends in my life. I had David Bowie. So you see. It's a magical David. name. 
is a magical. Something going on. <laughs> well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And um, God, it's been lovely. And it's been lovely, by the way, talking about Palm Springs and, and America, because to be honest, I saw that we kind of missed it this year not coming. So it's been really nice to hear your stories. Well, listen, do you have one more minute? Yes, I have got, yes, loads. Okay, because when I was listening, okay, in 19-whatever, I don't know when I did this little mimeograph book, 68, probably 1970, it was my first little book that I put out called Pop-Tart, and then I did Pop-Tart Compositions, was published kind of book. But this was just mimeographed, you know, sent out to friends. And um, I had written this poem in it called Breakfast or Breakfast, and in Dana Gillespie's interview, she's talking to you, and I swear to God, I, I, so I, I wrote this poem probably sometime before 1970, and I put it in this little book, and she's talking to you, and I swear to God, it's like she's reading my poem. <laughs> and I didn't even know Dana Gillespie in 1970, and I don't think I ever gave her this or anything. So it'll take like, uh, it's two stanzas. It'll take a minute. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. That's no problem. So I was going to I was going to read it to you because when I heard her saying it, I was like, oh, my God, that sounds like a poem I wrote in 1970 or before. OK, so break fast or breakfast. We follow the path of life like a surfer on the crest of a wave, winding, turning, softly gliding, meeting each new motion of the sea of life with a burst of sun-like energy, trying always to keep just in front of the white water, lest we become swallowed and consumed by the rush of pristine foam forevermore. And yet we know somehow that arriving safely on the sandy shore while elating us in our victory fills us with that unquenchable thirst for yet another ride and satisfaction is just a momentary thing. Wow. That's... Now, do you remember her saying that to you? Yeah, it does ring a bell. She said something just like that, just like that. To you, and it, it reminded me of this, and I thought, oh, I've got to read him that poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, amazing. That is sad. Yeah. That's quite cunning. Well, this is fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me this time, and hopefully, well, yes. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you. You're so much fun. The best interview I've done in... And that is going to be the end of the interview, apart from a few little moments there. But that's been edited out. It's nothing that exciting. Anyway, a big thank you to Cherry Vanilla for giving me the time for that interview. Massive thanks. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived, all these interviews. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.